This is a podcast by The Straits Times. It's now February 2022, and with the highly contagious Omicron variant of COVID-19 spreading through the community here, it seems that everywhere you look, there is someone who knows another person who has caught the coronavirus. But now that Omicron has turned out to be less worrisome than thought, are we ready to stop talking about COVID? How are we going to live with it? What does endemic COVID mean and are we there yet? Welcome to Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Senior Health Correspondent Joyce Teo. To help us understand what's happening and what to expect going forward, we have an expert here, Professor Teo Ying, the Dean of the NUS Salisbury Hawk School of Public Health. Prof Teo, who is regularly featured in the media, trained as a mathematician at Imperial College London, and did his master's and PhD in statistics at Oxford University in the UK. Hi, Prof Dio. Welcome to Health Check. Thank you for having me. So Singapore is transitioning to treating COVID-19 as endemic, right? And you've spoken about what it's like to live with COVID. So, you know, in Singapore, how far along are we in this journey to the endemic COVID stage? What has happened in the past couple of weeks is that we have seen the number of infections happening in the community to be rising Now, while many people would be worried about it, in my opinion, actually, that is what every country, every city will need to go through in order to live with COVID-19 successfully. So our perception do need to change because it's no longer a dangerous disease that we were faced with in the beginning of a pandemic where we don't have the vaccines, we don't have the right drugs to treat us. And that's why you read about many cities, many countries actually relaxing despite the fact that the infection numbers are at their all-time high. Countries like Malaysia, Sweden, Philippines, the UK, the US, infection numbers are actually surging very much, but they are relaxing a lot of their restrictions, not because they are desperate and they have no choice, but because it is very clear now that there is increasingly evidence to disentangle being infected with COVID-19 with the severe outcomes that we always worry about, sending people to hospitals, getting people severely ill. So from what you're saying, actually, we we should already lift the restrictions now, right? These are all the reasons for that. In order to lift the restrictions, we also want to make sure that Singapore remains prepared to care for the people who need hospital care. But is this, so yes, you mentioned that, right? So the authorities have talked about the sure number of Omicron cases possibly overwhelming the system. But, you know, is this something that the public should be worried about? So if we look at what is needed in the long term, so we're no longer just talking about the next couple of weeks or next few months, but in the long term for the next five, 10 years, how would societies live with COVID-19? It will still be through a very prudent mix of vaccination and actually natural infection. People need to be naturally infected for their body to develop the immune system to to cope with this infection. That's how the human species as a race has actually handled endemic infectious diseases all the while. Of course, we want to do that, making sure that people don't actually end up being very ill to the point that they have long-term consequences. So that's where the vaccines come in. That's where the therapeutics comes in. We want to phase this out in a manner such that we don't overwhelm the hospital too quickly. So that's the the part that Singapore is watching very carefully. Right. So at some point, all of us will be infected with COVID. Yes. The, The mindset shift must happen because right now I do sense that there's still this general fear 
of being infected with COVID-19 that people worry about it a lot. That, oh, what happens if I'm infected? I go straight to the A&E. Actually, right now, it's really a very different situation. Many of us, if you are vaccinated already, you are very well protected. So this mindset shift does need to happen. And I must add at this point that Singapore, we've done extremely well in the past two years telling people how dangerous COVID-19 is. And that's how we are able to get people to cooperate, to stick to the restrictions, because we know that at that point in time when there were no effective vaccines, there were no effective drugs to treat, being infected with COVID-19 can be quite disastrous for people. The situation has changed. We need to slowly get people to understand that actually being infected with COVID-19 now is no longer that dangerous because of all the reasons I mentioned earlier. And we actually become better for it because now our body will recognize the coronavirus the next time it comes into contact with it and it will know how to fight it better. So from what you're saying, do we need to even wear masks, you know, in the future? Well, certainly this has been one of the most asked uh, questions whenever we talk about potentially relaxing the restrictions. In my opinion, actually, the mask... uh, it goes beyond protecting one against COVID-19. There's still all kinds of respiratory infections that people get infected from, from socializing with others, uh, including influenza, including colds. And in fact, if we look back at the past two years, the deaths that are attributed to pneumonia, to influenza, have actually fallen in some jurisdiction, in some cities. So that's because people have been much more conscious in wearing masks and and also because of reduced interactions and socialising, people are less likely to be infected with some of these respiratory uh, pathogens or infectious diseases. So there is definitely a case that we can gradually lift the restriction on masks, especially outdoor mask wearing. But for indoor mask wearing, I do see that in a country like Singapore, where we rely heavily on mechanical ventilation, indoor ventilation, using air condition, the mask does still serve a purpose in protecting people. If we are able to reach the level of social individual responsibility, like in countries like Japan or jurisdiction like Taiwan, where people consciously, actively wear a face mask when they're just not feeling very well, I think that's definitely a practice that we can aim for. But definitely, I do need to empathize with many of my colleagues and many other people who are working in open plan offices where they don't have their own private offices. And so they may end up having to wear the mask the whole day while at work. And that is certainly very difficult and very uh, taxing on the person. So maybe for this year, it will still be a part of our lives. Sounds like it, right? Yes, I do think so. What about social distancing then? Social distancing, particularly around dining eateries, I think this is increasingly going to be quite difficult to maintain because whenever you try to put in place a social distancing requirement, it actually means that many of these outlets or even shops, offices, they will have to reduce their capacity somehow. But answering your question directly, social distancing during endemic state I do not think that we will need to have social distancing anymore. I think some people are already, you know, doing away with it. <laughs> so, so yeah, so the question of endemic, when do you think that will possibly happen? This is going to be a mixture of public health considerations and also economic considerations. We can't be in a state that anytime there's a surge in infection numbers, then we put in place the, the restrictions again. Then in a way, that isn't really an endemic response. That is still a pandemic response. 
despite the fact that Omicron is spreading very well in many jurisdictions, countries such as the United Kingdom, they are starting to see that their healthcare demand actually to be coming down. So we are still waiting for the official scientific evidence. But anecdotally, it seems that Omicron has actually turned out to be a blessing for some of these countries that were struggling with Delta earlier on. Because it seems to suggest that if I'm infected with Omicron, it actually protects me against a short-term infection with Delta in the near term. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. So, uh, Prof, you are the expert in numbers, right? So, you know, what, what kind of numbers should we look out for, you know, when it comes to Omicron infections? The government has recently released some numbers, right? I mean, I think um, it may actually scare some people. So, when we talk about the numbers, um, maybe I can also scare people even more. And also to tell people why they shouldn't be worried about the numbers. The numbers that we see daily, for example, yesterday uh, or the past few days, it was 10,000 and more. Actually, that number is already an undercount. The actual number of infections happening in Singapore, I mentioned, could be two times, could be three times more. But do I need to worry? My recommendation is that we don't need to worry because if you are fully vaccinated, you are safe. But if in your social circle or in your family, you know of people who are unvaccinated, that is where you need to worry for them. You need to watch out for them. Right now, as countries start to open up more, relax more, there will be more and more community infections. The chance of picking up an infection in the community is very high. And if someone is unvaccinated, right now, is I would consider it to be, uh, it's actually much more dangerous now for them. So the numbers are actually for the unvaccinated? It's still a sanity check to really get a sense of how, what is the current COVID-19 situation, at least in the hospital setting, in the healthcare setting, in the GPs, polyclinics and hospitals. Because those numbers, including the ART, are mainly obtained from the healthcare setting. So it gives a stronger link between what we see, 10,000 cases in a day, with the rising number of hospitalizations. At the end of the day, the hospitals are the ones that are the bottleneck for whether countries can open up safely or not. Yes, Singapore's vaccination is amongst the highest in the world. And I mentioned about more than 60% of our population are boosted. So we really are in a very privileged position compared to many other countries in, in the world. Right. I think that's why some people are getting upset with the restrictions, right? But you mentioned healthcare resources, so those are limited. And in Singapore, is that why? Is that something that we should be more, you know, like more worried about than in other countries? To be honest, Singapore, we generally have a, a lower appetite for people getting ill because the moment anyone gets severely ill, we are very quick to pounce on it and say that, did our politicians call it wrong? Did our policymakers make the wrong decision? And so on. So that led to a much more risk-averse approach towards tackling crisis. And I'm not saying that we should be blessé about people dying, but we need to understand whether some of the deaths that we're seeing are deaths that would have been attributed to conditions such as pneumonia, influenza, and because they had underlying complications that they were already quite frail. Last year, there was actually a lot of concerns over the number of deaths that happened in Singapore. Was there 
a surge in the death, number of deaths or excess mortality. We will call it excess mortality, meaning there were more people dying than what we would anticipate given our demography. It's easy to be risk averse because I can put in measures that really restrict restrictions, uh, minimize infections from happening. But I think right now we need to really understand that all measures are not without cost. When we put in place measures, students actually miss out on developments from their social interactions that happen during their CCAs. Workplace interactions, the building of teams definitely have been affected. Many businesses continue to be affected. I see. So, but at this stage where you said, you know, countries around us are opening up, should we be following suit soon? So on the public health side, I actually think that we are ready. But beyond that, Singapore, from my naive knowledge of Singapore's economy, we do rely a lot on our ability to do business with the rest of the world, particularly our status as a strategic air hub in Asia Pacific. It will be definitely a concern if many of our neighbours are able to open up completely while Singapore still maintain a very strict stance with respect to our travel arrangements, requiring VTL arrangements. So, I think we are prepared and ready to open up with very few public health and healthcare impact. And we just need to decide when is the right time. Are we able to move beyond looking at the health now to also consider our economy? Right, interesting. And when the health, I mean, you're talking about the hospital cases. So these people actually have other conditions and that's why they were in the hospital, right? So, But they are also counted as COVID cases. Yes, and in fact... I suspect increasingly there will be deaths that may be attributed to COVID-19 because the person has COVID-19 at the point of, of demise. Just like how pneumonia is often listed as one of the drivers or the causes of deaths or mortality. Not because pneumonia was the primary trigger. The primary trigger could be other things like a cardiac arrest, a heart attack. But when they were in the hospitals, they were infected and they had pneumonia. Generally, when parts of your body starts breaking down, you are much more vulnerable to, to infections. So that's why I do see that COVID-19 is likely to be registered as an official cause of death in death registries around the world. There are already reports emerging in countries where people are going to the hospital for other conditions, but as part of the admission process, they were tested for COVID-19 and that's when they were discovered that these people had COVID-19. I'm certain that such situation happened in Singapore as well. I see. So is that the change between now and then? So in the past, um, COVID-19 could be the primary trigger, right? especially when you know people were not vaccinated. But now it's most likely the secondary trigger and also because it's Omicron versus Delta. Well, certainly all of the above that you have mentioned are true. Hopefully, COVID-19 will also be one of the coronavirus that will behave like the other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. There is this perception now that Omicron COVID could be similar or even milder than influenza. Okay, but what about the symptoms in terms of the, you know, for flu, I think some people might get milder symptoms than with COVID. Um, I've heard, I'm not sure that the sore throat can be really, really bad. I've not gotten COVID 19 myself, whether Omicron or Delta. So I, I don't have personal experience. Okay. Uh, but I my personal experience is that I have had quite severe flu episodes that just knocked me out quite badly as well, including fever and sore throat. So yeah, but, but coming back to what you mentioned, I think whenever we talk about mild symptoms, to a person who is infected, 
it can still feel quite pretty bad for that few days. But generally, people do recover fairly well afterwards, after three to seven days. And for Omicron infection, this is again where emerging evidence is suggesting that there is no loss in the sense of taste and whether there is long-term COVID that we talk about where some of the symptoms and impact persist for a long time after the primary infection, a long time meaning more than three months, more than six months. I think for Omicron and for vaccinated people, there's evidence to suggest that if you're fully vaccinated, it reduces the risk of long-term COVID. And for Omicron, we haven't yet seen enough data because Omicron just emerged about maybe at most two months ago. We haven't seen enough data about long-term symptoms of Omicron. But I like to think that actually, given the symptoms that Omicron generates, it's the risk of long COVID is also going to be reduced. That's good. Back to normal this year, hopefully. So, Prof, thanks for your time today and thanks for helping us understand, you know, what's uh, endemic COVID. I actually feel quite hopeful now for this year. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. Don't forget to subscribe to us for free on your favourite smartphone apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Search for Straits Times Health Check, like us and give us a rating. Thank you for listening. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.